Well, welcome to the BC Messenger, real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. This is the December 2022 issue of the BC Messenger newsletter and podcast. And so we must begin by saying Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. Jingle and thank bells, you for jingle bells, jingle. I'm trying to put the Christmas spirit here. It's Christmas time. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, we did have some snow outside of yeah. our house today falling Dashing through the snow. Very picturesque and enjoyable yeah. <clears throat> this time of year. And we certainly do hope that as you're prepping for the Christmas season in a variety of ways, singing spontaneous Christmas carols or whatever this time of year finds you doing, that you'll be able to listen through the podcast and give it some thoughtful consideration uh, along the way as you have a few minutes here and there. Can you believe this is episode five? Episode five. The time has gone by fast. And yeah, we do have a full podcast once again here. And Jen, give us some bullet points here today, what we're talking about. Okay, so we're going to jump right into our Real Science, Real Bible, A Trail Through the Wilderness. Uh, Then we have a little glimpse of some upcoming research, which we're going to give to you some very exciting things coming up in the future of the BC Messenger. Um, Talking about our featured video, a quote of note. Uh, which is interesting and relates in with the work here. Then we are having a new section called Aging 101, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. And you'll be learning more about aging in a very basic sense uh, based on the research here. And then going into a brand new testimonial from Thelma, who is 93 years old and called in to share her experience with us of supplementing our anti-aging vitamins. And then uh, Helen's view uh, towards the end of the broadcast, talking about Dr. Ardsma's education, going way back to his grade school years and on up from there. And uh, yes, so lots to do. Got to get started. Well, let's jump right in here today. In the October podcast, a couple of months ago, we discussed the new corrected date for the Exodus when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. Dr. Ardsma's work has correlated the collapse of the old kingdom of Egypt with the biblical account of the Exodus. This is a striking correlation when you see these things put together. Following this event, the Bible records what we call the wilderness wanderings. Many people today claim that this biblically recorded migration of millions of people through the Sinai Desert is not historical, that they claim that it's not factual. Well, why is this the case? Archaeological surveys of the Sinai Peninsula were done from the 1960s through the 1980s. What was found and recorded during these surveys? And do the findings confirm or deny the biblical account? Remember, true stories, as we often say, true stories are found in real world history. Right. And the corrected date for the Exodus is 2450 B.C., uh, as opposed to the traditional date of 1450 B.C. So if that's the correct date for the Exodus, then we should be able to uh, find a trail through the wilderness. You know, I think sometimes we 
forget how just how real these biblical accounts are. And I think we've seen them dramatized, we've seen them animated, we've seen them portrayed on stage and uh, in Bible storybooks, and even Disney movies have been made based on some of these Bible stories. And so they lose uh, the nitty gritty real world aspect that they definitely had when they happened. And one thing that came to mind as I was thinking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, Many of our listeners are probably familiar with the Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. and Branson, Missouri, I think. Yes, down in Branson, which does a wonderful job of portraying the Bible on stage and beautiful music and wonderful acting and just such a nice uh, thing to take your family to. But we had taken our family to several of those plays over the years, and one was Moses. And So at the end of the Moses play, they have come out of Egypt and they are in the desert. Now, of course, um, they're limited. Their stage company is limited in what they can portray. But the way that it was being portrayed was like this little vagabond group of people running around the wilderness, climbing up on rocks, singing songs. There were maybe 40, 40 of them. And so that was their dramatic representation and I'm not criticizing sight and sound we have thoroughly enjoyed it for our family but we forget just how real and just how huge something like the wilderness wanderings really was you know we're talking about real families and real tents and real food um and we're talking about millions not not hundreds not thousands but millions of people. I saw a picture uh, one time of, I believe it was Billy Graham who had been speaking to an audience somewhere overseas, but it was a picture of this vast multitude of people. And I think they said it was a million people who had come to listen to him. And it's just hard to even fathom the sea of people that that is. Right. And the Bible says it was over 600,000 men that came out of Egypt. So, of course, uh, we need to count the wives and the the women and the children. Uh, And the Bible also records that there was a mixed multitude that went up from Egypt with them, which was some of the Egyptian people. Um, You know, we're talking about food and water and roads and animals and mountains and and desert you know, desert that we can still go to today. And so because we have this advanced science of archaeology, the Bible recording this kind of history and the people who have gone in as archaeologists and have studied these areas, there can't just be a blank slate there. You know, there's going to be a picture um, emerging through the work of the archaeologists in these desert regions where nobody lives. So the ancient history is is there. So what you're saying is if a million or two million people wandered around the desert for 40 years, then you'd think there'd at least be something found to support it. Well, definitely. I mean, think about a million Americans. You know, I think you've used this illustration before, Steve, that we wouldn't be able to go out uh, even just on a week-long camping excursion with that many people, that many families, without leaving some pretty serious evidence behind, possibly even 
probably for thousands and thousands of years to come if it was left undisturbed. Sure. If you took a, uh, well, let's just say you took a million Americans today on a journey through the Sinai Peninsula, um, you would probably be able to find soda cans and water bottles for generations to come, showing that that really happened in the real world. Right. And so what did these people have, these ancient peoples coming up out of Egypt? Well, they didn't have soda cans. They didn't have Pepsi. They didn't have Coke. True. They didn't have water bottles. True. But they did have something that's even better. Yes. What they had was pottery. Pottery is key in the science of archaeology. It helps to identify people groups. It helps to identify time periods. And of course, it's used in conjunction with radiocarbon dating to be able to say when um, these particular styles and types of pottery date to. And they can take even a very small shard of pottery and make conclusions off of it. And so You know, the Bible says when they went up out of Egypt, they had their kneading bowls on their shoulders, I think is what it says. Right. And so, you know, all these ladies had to feed their families and... Exodus 12, 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Right. And so this was the pottery of their day and time. Now, what happens when you're in the desert and a pottery bowl breaks? Uh, and you're in a group of millions of people, yours isn't going to be the only one broken. Uh, It is going to be left discarded where it broke. Well, it's not very valuable to those people in the sense that once it's shattered, it's, you know, and it's very durable, so it's not going to disintegrate and no thief is going to want it, come along and steal it. So it's a really wonderful way to go back into history and find evidence for people groups, for events that were supposed to have happened in the real world. Right. So when they did these surveys of the Sinai Peninsula, which was, again, uh, from the 1960s through the 1980s, they did find pottery. And, of course, spanning great periods of time, not just pertaining to biblical events. In fact, these secular archaeologists probably were not trying to correlate it with any biblical events. They're just recording what they're finding. And so they came up with uh, nothing at the traditional date of the Exodus. No pottery was found that would correlate to the traditional date of 1450 BC. The millions of people that would have gone through the wilderness at the traditional date must have vanished without a trace because nothing was found at that date. And so once again, um, the Bible and the history there is falling on difficult territory for a reasonable defense of our faith. But once again, with the corrected date for the Exodus of 2450 BC, uh, the pieces the pottery pieces come together and all the pieces fall right into place. Looking at the records that the archeologists gave us and looking at what the Bible is telling us, it's all there. And Steve, you can maybe yeah. share more detail well, with us. We have an article on this, which we'll be talking about a video on this as well for a lot more detail. But but yeah, it is amazing. Um, let me give you a quote by archaeologist Ram Gofna. Egyptian pottery has been identified among the finds of the North Sinai survey conducted by the Ben Gurion University in the 70s. And the Egyptian shards were found together with pottery 
typical of the Intermediate Bronze Age in Israel at 45 campsites of the period discovered during the survey. Now, again, we don't have time to get into all the details, but what they're basically saying here is at the corrected dates, at the corrected chronology dates, 2450 BC, during this uh, Intermediate Bronze Age in Israel, and again, you'd have to go look these articles and videos up for more details, that pottery has been located, and it's the exact kind that we're looking for that we're calling Exodus pottery. Right, because the Exodus pottery is unique because you would have had the Israeli style of pottery, most of it being that because it was mostly Israelites. But then again, there were some Egyptians who went up, and so there is a unique mixture of Egyptian pottery in with these shards dating back to the exact time that our new chronology expects it to be. Right. And well, uh, and, and let's ahead. not miss what these archaeologists are saying. What they're saying is that a survey, survey was conducted in the Sinai Peninsula. Israelite pottery has been found. This pottery is mixed with Egyptian pottery. The Israelite pottery dates to the Middle Bronze Age one, which is our the time of our missing millennium, uh, 2450 BC, and the Egyptian pottery dates to the end of the Old Kingdom and the beginning of the uh, first intermediate period. Right. All of this is in line with our adjusted chronology. Yes, and the end of the Old Kingdom of Egypt, of course, is correlated with the Exodus, and that is exactly what this Egyptian pottery is dating to, along with what Steve has described there for the Israeli pottery. And, you know, again, as we discussed in some of our other episodes, these secular scientists are not trying to prove a missing millennium. They've never even heard of the missing millennium. They are not particularly interested in corroborating the Bible, although sometimes they comment on it. And in fact, there was an archaeologist, uh, Rudolf Cohen, in 1983, who made this statement. The settlement picture in the central Negev in the third millennium BC offers striking parallels to the description of the Israelite presence in this area as presented in the Old Testament tradition of the Exodus and conquest. So he was commenting on the fact that although this isn't the right date, according to traditional dates, it sure does bear some striking resemblances. And so he said, for this reason, I propose a reevaluation of the entire chronological scheme in which the Israelite settlement in Canaan is normally studied. We wholeheartedly agree. Yes, we agree with that. And it's just continuing to build the case uh, that we are seeing here that the missing millennium discovery continues to work so well at these new dates. And again, let me just stress very quickly that you you can't just insert a thousand years into history and expect it to work unless it's actually missing. And that's what again what we're trying to get across on our podcast is that we're we're building the case that when you insert this one thousand years into biblical chronology, instead of chaos and confusion, you find the accounts, you find clarity. And it's just amazing. And and this is just another example of finding the evidence for millions of people wandering around in the deserts through pottery. And it's all right there for the finding when you get the dates right. It's not just the types of pottery and the dates, but it's also the arrangement of the campsites that they 
worked on during these archaeological surveys, these ancient groupings of pottery found throughout the Sinai Desert. At Sinai, when the Israelites finally came to Mount Sinai, God gave them a unique arrangement for their tribes and their camps. But up to that time, there would not have been this order. And so it would have been unstructured as they camped and moved from location to location. Now, here's um, what we find. The archaeologists found pottery, but not in single enormous individual campsites, but rather they found clusters of many sites of various sizes along an ancient roadway. The arrangement of these clusters was found to be unique, just the kind of natural organization that you might expect that the tribal pastoral Israelites with their flocks and family groups would have had. Uh, Dr. Ardsma says this, two of the archaeologists describe what they found as, quote, clusters of sites with large settlement units at their center and small settlements at their margins, unquote. Their description seems fully compatible with the identification of the large sites as the central hub of activity for one or more of the Israelite tribes. And around the large sites were medium-sized sites, which they suggest represent the living quarters of families. And then around the periphery of these were small sites, which they identify as the campsites of shepherds, those who watched the flocks. And all of that just um, harmonizes so well with what we know of the Israelites from the scriptural accounts. And again, these campsites are located because of the pottery. They find these pottery shards strewn out, and then they they show the arrangement. They can show the arrangement of the campsites based upon these archaeological finds of this pottery. And, you know, uh, we don't have time to, to go much further on this particular topic, but if they found the pottery shards in the desert, in, in the wilderness there, then you would expect that the pottery shards, you could follow them, right? You could follow the trail and find out, well, what's the route that they took? And if you follow the route and you figured it out, well, then guess what? You're going to find out where the Red Sea crossing actually took place. You can follow the route right to the real Mount Sinai. And, yeah, and that's incredible. I can't wait till the day we talk yeah, about Mount Sinai so on the podcast. Stay tuned. In future podcasts, we're going to be getting into all of these things and just showing you how this missing millennium theory just keeps building. And one more quick note, the archaeological data suggests that the um, encampments of the whole population were spread out along the road for a distance of roughly 20 miles. Uh, That's incredible. You know, that's very real world when you think about that many people covering that kind of an area and they covered an area in excess of four square miles. So they camped along the ancient road and it was 20 miles from start to finish for all those groups and animals and people and that's yeah. just amazing. And a couple of million people. That's a lot of people. And what a, what a fascinating story it is. I mean, God even fed these people. Yeah. Hey, here comes our yeah. glimpse of the upcoming uh, research that we are just chomping at the bit to be able to report to you. But uh, we have had reports from Dr. Ardsma on manna. Manna. What is that? What is it? What is it? <laughs> That's what, That's what the Israelites said. What is it? Well, and let um, me just say you want to stay tuned to our podcast. We can't give too much information away yet, but manna, it was a real thing. 
it was a real thing and in the real God world. did it miraculously for his people, but it was a food and they lived off of it for decades there in the wilderness. And how did that come about? We are hoping to be able to very soon be able to give you some fascinating details about yes. manna and what is it? And Dr. Arzma has been very busy in the lab, early mornings and detailed study on yet another branch of the fascinating research here. Yep. So for a more thorough discussion of this topic, go to our show notes uh, on the podcast, or of course, if you're looking at the newsletter right there, and uh, you can link over to our article on this topic, as well as a video that we put together. There's a 15-minute video uh, where I'm explaining more about the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, It's called The Israelites in the Wilderness, Evidence in the Right Place and at the Right Time. Yeah, so check it out and share it uh, with your friends and on your social media and helping to give a reasonable defense and data for the amazing treasure trove we have in the Old Testament scriptural accounts. All right, well, moving right on to our quote of note. Here is a quote by Buckminster Fuller. He said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Now, I'm not sure that we would agree with every statement that Buckminster Fuller made, but this grabs me. You never change things by fighting the existing reality, railing against it. You know, if you really want to make a change, build a new model. Uh, put the old model out of date and show something that works better, that does better. So do we Christians want to change anything today? Yeah, what do we what as do we Christians want to, change? want to change? Well, we probably would all agree that ultimately we want to change the culture, a culture that currently has no real basis for truth and is now, as we can all observe and see, uh, in the West at least, it's rapidly disintegrating. Right, we talked about this at length yes, we did. last month, and you can go back and listen to the November podcast on that. Right, well, part of changing the existing reality of our current culture is to show that the Bible is trustworthy and it's trustworthy in the real world and in real history and this is a key role of the biblical chronologist after the discovery of the missing millennium dr arzma was able to build a new model in the area of biblical chronology like our quote says build a new model most people today are still operating within the framework of the old model of biblical chronology and this causes those who desire to defend the scriptures to have to constantly fight the existing quote reality of the bible seeming to be falsified in its most ancient history but these bible believers operating in the old framework they really only have two options in attempting to fight this reality, which our quote says, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. They only have two options within the old framework. They may either choose to ignore the data that's being presented surrounding them on many hands. Uh, They can ignore it and they can just say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. 
which is good and noble, but doesn't really deal with the data that's that's staring them in the face. Or they can attempt to explain away the data. Uh, right. The data is not true or the science is tricking us or we're relying on our human reasoning and we should just uh, not do that. And so they can either ignore it, they can explain it away. And there's been a lot of time spent in these kinds of activities railing against the existing reality and the old model. But the truth is and the very good news is that there is a new model. And indeed, the old is obsolete. The new model works beautifully. Sure, as we have just been explaining. One example is the Exodus and the the pottery in the Sinai Desert that's been found. It, It does work beautifully. Right. And so the old model is obsolete and it is now known to be false. And so now back to where we started with the quote, uh, we are in a position to begin to see things change in our current culture as we go back to the root and the foundation, a basis for truth. Right. And so it's wonderful because it puts us Christians on the offense and not always just on the defense. Right, and the change isn't going to happen overnight. The cultural decay has not happened overnight either, although it's accelerating at quite an enormous pace now. But it starts slowly. It, uh, the, the beginning of the change is going to happen slowly, one person at a time, uh, one communication at a time, as we pray and as we seek to put forth truth and answers. Now, let's just be clear that we are saying that what we have here is one piece of the puzzle. This is not the answer. Getting the chronology right in the scripture uh, is not the answer to all the problems that we're, that we're dealing with in um, American culture and the culture of the West in, in the world today. But it is a major piece. It's a and big piece of that's the right. puzzle because it has pulled out the rug from underneath uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic and uh, worldview that has been a pillar for which our culture was built upon. That's right. The heart of man is the issue that we are dealing with. And of course, the only answer for the heart of man is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we are talking about with the chronology shows in the real world that these things we talk about with the gospel, with Christ, with Jesus's birth and why he came, it's all real. It's all true. And it's it all happened in real in real world history. Jesus Christ came into this real world and the cross, the resurrection, all of it's true. Right. And it's not really up to believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and whatever's real to me may not be real to you. Uh, but there is an objective, true reality that we all need to face. Yes. All right. Well, now we're going to make the turn in our podcast into uh, the topic of aging as we do each month. And we have a new section, a new segment of our podcast called Aging 101. And we're going to focus on all that is currently known about aging through Dr. Ardsma's decades of research, which has culminated in the discovery of the anti-aging vitamins. Again, these things are all connected. Dr. Arzma's research, getting the chronology right, going through the scriptures all the way back to the lifespans of men and women before the flood, has led ultimately to 
the discovery of the anti-aging vitamins. Yes, and we're able to bring you this segment, which we're calling Aging 101, uh, because of patient, careful, dedicated, groundbreaking research spanning decades. And this is 100% unique content, uh, one-of-a-kind stuff. You will not be able to take Aging 101 anywhere else. You know, uh, when med students go to school, I don't believe they take a class called Aging 101 or anything uh, really about here is what aging is and why it does this, because nobody up to uh, this point in history has been able to make a working theory, a working hypothesis for what's going on with the body with aging. And so at some future day, I believe that med students will take a class called Aging 101. Family doctors all over the U.S. need to begin to understand these truths. Now, we're here at the very, very beginning of what is going to be, I believe, a huge paradigm shift in our understanding and in the way that we deal with uh, the aging process in the body. But we're at the very, very beginning. So I know it sounds far-fetched to say that family doctors one day are going to, this is going to be general knowledge, but I do believe that. And going back to our quote at the beginning, if you want to change something, you gotta build a new model. We can see that we need a new model for aging, but what we actually need is a model because um, right now there's nothing in the mainstream at all uh, to explain aging in the body. So the existing reality that we have right now is that everyone will die of aging by age 100. But with all that is known today in the field of aging research based upon the longevity data in Genesis, the existing reality may be on its way to becoming obsolete. Right. So what we're teaching you here today in Aging 101 is our working hypothesis uh, presently. And here's the lesson for today. Very simple. Aging is not a natural process. Rather, it is a disease. Let me repeat that. Aging is not a natural process. process. Rather, it is a disease. In the newsletter... There is a graphic there in the section Aging 101, and it is titled, Why the Difference? This is actually an advertisement that we ran for the book Aging, Cause, and Cure. It says, Noah was a godly preacher. He lived 950 years. Billy Graham was a godly preacher. He lived 99 years. Why the difference? And that pretty much sums up where we're coming from with the aging work here and how we have gotten to the conclusion aging is not a natural process, rather it is a disease. Um, It's based from that fundamental question. And of course, the uh, outworkings of the answer are quite detailed and have spanned decades. But um, when we say it is a disease... That kind of shocks us right there. And we think, well, what disease are you talking about? Because the only diseases we know of are diseases that uh, some people get, some people don't. We hope we don't get. We don't want to see anyone suffering with the diseases we're familiar with. And to put aging itself as an actual disease definitely is unfamiliar to us. And how do we know this? 
Well, let me give a quote from Dr. Ardsma uh, again on the topic that aging is a disease. This is why people lived so much longer before Noah's flood. Aging is a nutritional deficiency disease of two closely related vitamins. The flood was a global catastrophe. This catastrophe broke the natural production of these vitamins in Earth's environment so that these vitamins became less and less available to humans after the flood. As a result, lifespans recorded in the Bible became shorter and shorter following the flood. By the time of Moses' death, about four and a half thousand years ago, Earth's environment had run entirely out of these vitamins and lifespans had dwindled to what they are today. We are dying so much sooner than people died before the flood because we are severely afflicted with deficiency diseases of these two vitamins. What we call, quote, aging is really simply the disease which results from never getting any of these two vitamins. There is so much to think about there in these brand new ideas about aging and what is happening. And could it really be that it's a deficiency of these two missing vitamins that are causing the terrible breakdown and suffering due to aging? You know, when you're in something, we're all in it. We all have seen aging uh, surrounding us from our earliest days. So we're fully immersed in it. And when you're in something, it seems normal to you. But just because something seems normal to us doesn't mean that our perspective on it is actually correct. And the other day, a good example of this is uh, we were looking at the moon the other day and we thought, you know, it sure does look like that moon lights up, doesn't it? It Right. Like like there's shining, you know, of its own accord. There's light coming out of it. but But it's not. And if we had lived a few hundred years ago, even a thousand years ago, we probably would have thought that was the case, but our perception would have been wrong. Right. Dr. Arzma has a quote, when a person is engulfed by a misconception, the actual truth can seem very strange. Yes. And aging is not a simple matter. It's a very complex breakdown of the body that's manifesting itself in so many different ways. The diseases that we know of dementia and heart disease and cancer and all the killers. But all of this is just manifestations of the same root cause of the body not getting these two missing vitamins and the disease that results we call today aging. And again, uh, it seems so foreign to us to think about living any longer than 100. Another example from the endearing Sight and Sound Theater productions that I mentioned earlier, when we went to see the play about Noah, at one point on the stage, there's these two ladies having some kind of discussion as they're getting ready to load up on the ark or something. And one of them says to the other, well, we're only in our 430s. (laughs) And then, you know, this wave of laughter goes over the the audience um, just as an obvious manifestation that to us today, that sounds ridiculous. But in fact, what's normal to us today may not actually be, quote, normal. What's normal to us today may actually be ridiculous. Right. Well... Carrying on with the aging uh, theme, we have another testimonial for our podcast here today 
Thelma. Thelma is 93 years old and recently ordered the anti-aging vitamins after receiving a postcard mailer that we uh, placed in the mail from Dr. Ardsma, which explained about his discovery of these two previously unknown vitamins. And Thelma has provided the following testimonial. Thelma says, your vitamins have a cathartic effect. They make your bowels move. I've had to take very high levels of magnesium in order to have regular bowel movements. It was the only thing that would help me. I can see that I can now stop doing that. I prayed right before I got the postcard that God would help me find a way for my colon to be cleaned out without any kind of intervention. This is doing it. I don't know what else it's uh, going, I don't know what else it's going to do, but I'm thrilled. This is an absolute miracle. The vitamins seem to be balancing something out in my system. Also, she says, my wrinkles are looking better. My skin looks totally different. The wrinkles are still there, but the, quote, creasiness on top of the wrinkles is gone. I take six drops every morning, then I take communion, and then I go to my prayer time, and I thank God for your company. So be encouraged. That was wonderful to hear from Thelma and to speak with her on the phone and get this report from her. And others have also reported improvement in regular bowel movements uh, after taking the anti-aging vitamin supplement. Of course, this is just one person's testimonial. We don't recommend anything without talking to your doctor, of course. And uh, if you're struggling with any of these issues, we always recommend getting the advice of your practitioner. To learn more about the newly discovered vitamins or to purchase them, you can, again, look in our show notes or, again, if you have the newsletter, the link is right there. And hey, you know, this is a unique Christmas gift idea. If you are looking for the unique gift to give to somebody who uh, is difficult to buy for, um, a recurring subscription is a great idea. You know, there's different companies that offer subscriptions you can give that will continue to come to the person through the year. I've gotten, Steve, um, a subscription once to a Universal Yums uh, company that sent out different ethnic uh, foods and treats from around the world, and he got a box every month. That was fun. Yeah, we have eight kids, and it didn't last long, let me tell you. Yeah, the treats were in high demand. I had to hide them as much as I could. But <laughs> it was fun, though. It was a neat gift. The subscription was neat. And yeah, what a gift idea. I bet it would be the most unique gift uh, that someone would get. You know, it really is a gift that could keep on giving for that person for a long time to give their body uh, what it so desperately needs in order to stay healthy and to fight the aging process. We know that we take diseases very seriously and thinking of aging as a disease, uh, we want to prevent diseases, we want to treat diseases, and in this case, um, with aging itself and the anti-aging vitamins that have been discovered, I really hope you'll educate yourself, take advantage of so many different resources on our website where you can learn and read and get free materials and um, make decisions for yourself and as giving it as a gift. As we mentioned, uh, we do have recurring subscriptions available so that you can receive your vitamins uh, on a regular basis if you would like to do that. So now we're going to go right into Helen's view as she brings us her thoughts here for the month of December. 
If we go way back behind the scenes, we come to Gerald's education, where he went to school, and the various types of classes he took, some of which would turn out to be very helpful in his future life's work. People are often surprised to learn that from middle school on, through his PhD program, Gerald attended Canadian schools, even though he was an American citizen. Gerald's folks moved to Canada from the United States in 1967 to start a Bible school in Cornwall, Ontario. Gerald was only 12 years old at the time, so he figured he had better go with them. Gerald attended Central Public Middle School, now called Cornwall Central Middle School, from 1967 to 1968 for grade 7, and then Glen Walter Public School for grade 8. I also attended this same middle school. I knew who he was, but we had no interaction. Gerald was one of the uncool kids. He dressed weird, and he was one of those smart, nerdy types. I was pretty uncool myself, but most definitely not the smart, nerdy type. For high school, Gerald attended Charland District High School in Williamstown, Ontario, from 1969 to 1974. Yes, that is five years of high school, because back then, Canada had five years of high school, ninth through 13th grade. Gerald played basketball and badminton, participated in track, and was in the debating club. Gerald has always loved to work with wood, so he took a shop class while in high school and built the usual small things, but his final project was building a real, life-size sailboat to sail on the St. Lawrence River. His shop teacher was pretty impressed, as you can well imagine. We actually sailed it on the river. One of our many dates was visiting the local hardware store with Gerald on a regular basis to buy stainless steel screws, stuff for rigging the sail, etc. We sewed the sail on my sewing machine. Sadly, we have no pictures of the boat, as that was well before everyone had a camera in their pocket. After graduating from high school, Gerald, at the ripe old age of 19, and I, at just barely 20, got married. That was 1974. Next time I share with you, I will talk about the two of us youngins heading off to Guelph, Ontario, to attend the University of Guelph, to begin Gerald's Bachelor of Science program. Helen's View, Part 2. Gerald and I have been reminiscing about our high school years. It is interesting that he remembers different things than I do. Gerald and I went to different high schools, quite a distance apart, and not in the same school district. For some reason, my basketball team played against his schoolgirls' basketball team. The game took place at his high school, and Gerald was a referee for the game. I have no memory of this event, but maybe there is a good reason for that. We both were very active in sports, and we both have many fond memories of those years. Gerald and I still play a pretty mean game of badminton, beating even our adult children and grandchildren. I am quite competitive. Some in my family might say that is putting it mildly. Gerald is not the type to just let me win. I must win fair and square. I rarely, if ever, beat him at badminton, but our marriage has managed to survive despite that. When Gerald was in 12th grade, he took a physics class which had combined both 12th and 13th grades. This class was only taught every other year due to it being a small school and due to students doing whatever they could to avoid taking physics, which had a reputation for being hard. Gerald was surprised to be at the top of the class, even though those in the 13th grade had one more year of math than he did. This was when he first realized he had math and physics aptitudes. 
At that point, he began to think about a possible career teaching those subjects in a Christian school someday. He would later discover that research was his real love, not teaching. Just for the record, I took physics in my 13th year as well. I struggled and failed the class, but the teacher passed me out of the kindness of his heart. Since Canada has French as a second language, we were both required to take French for several years in high school. This was conversational French, no textbooks, no pictures, just listening to the teacher talk, and we were required to make conversation. I grew up in a bilingual home hearing French and English equally, so French was pretty easy for me. Gerald, on the other hand, hardly ever heard it. He had a terrible time in French class. His brain worked logically, but logic doesn't get one very far learning another language. If only the teacher had told him to simply memorize the words and the meanings. At the end of the year, his teacher told him that he would pass him, but only if he promised not to take French again next year. Gerald did learn one French line pretty well, which he practiced on me quite frequently. Je t'aime. Overall, you can see that Gerald and I are a pretty balanced match. He covers for my weaknesses, and I cover for his. I excelled in language, writing, and conversation. I learned that in order to get A's in writing, one must write profusely for the assignments. Not so much quality content, but just plenty of content. In my eighth grade, the class took a vote on who was the most likely to succeed. I won the vote. I guess because I talked a lot, I got noticed or something. In the 1960s and 1970s, the culture was kinder, simpler, more practical, more polite, and more Christian. In Canada, we both attended public schools where we said the Lord's Prayer every morning, sang hymns, and had Bible reading. By the time we finished high school, many of those good things had disappeared. I remember the day when the Lord's Prayer was no longer said. It just vanished. Now so much of the Christian ethic has vanished. I am thankful for those solid Christian years that helped build Gerald and me into what we are today. It is always a pleasure to share with you. Have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll talk to you next year. All right, well, as we conclude our podcast today, why don't we end by just pausing to wonder at God's plan through the ages. We talked today about how God brought his people into the wilderness as he was slowly, as he was very slowly, bringing his redemption plan to pass. So much of the Old Testament gives us types and shadows of things to come. And here at the Christmas season, we can reflect on the Redeemer coming into the world. Uh, The Bible says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus is the true Israel. All the promises find their yes in him. And just as God met the needs of his people all through the wilderness as they trusted him, God will meet our needs as well. We know so much more of the story than those Israelites knew. We are on this side of the incarnation of Christ. We're on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Well, blessings to you this Advent season. As we remember God's covenant with us today, just as God remembered it with his people so many years ago when they were living in the wilderness, 2,400 years before the Messiah was even born. God is at work and he is faithful even as his plan unfolds ever so slowly. Well, these are exciting times to be alive and serving the King. Merry Christmas to you, and may you have a blessed time celebrating our Savior's birth, and we will see you again next next year. year.